This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, welcome back to the Detection at Scale podcast. My name is Jack Naglieri. Today I'm here with Jordan McReynolds, who's the VP of Engineering, IT and Security at Panther Labs, and a very good friend of mine. Prior to joining the company, Jordan led engineering and security teams at Red Canary, Airbnb, and Facebook, where he was also responsible for the development and open sourcing of technologies like OS Query, StreamAlert, and more. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks, Jack. Good to be here. Tell us a little bit more about yourself than I just went into. Yeah, I have a pretty storied past when it comes to uh, security. I've done a number of different things ranging from web application security to infrastructure security, intrusion detection, incident response, a number of different things. So I've been both an engineer, more of a classic analyst. And so, uh, yeah, know a little bit about everything to where I can be slightly dangerous. The thing I wanted to start with is your background while at Facebook. So OS Query is probably one of the most popular open source projects for security and probably the most well-known when it comes to endpoint detection. So I was curious about what led to the creation of OS Query while you were at Facebook and why did you choose to open source it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the answer might surprise some folks. It, it wasn't necessarily around, you know, Facebook built everything internally. They didn't use Jira or things like that. It's like they built their own tasks project. So for OS Query, it had a lot to do with business constraints. At the time, EDR existed, but was still pretty new and wasn't quite ready for production production instances powering facebook.com carbon black was really the only competitor at the time in the space and they were really good at collecting streaming data like process events and network events and file events but that wasn't giving us the visibility that we wanted for our linux-based systems or nix-based systems and so yeah as you can imagine the check you might have to write at facebook scale for that many number of servers we didn't have the budget at the time. Again, this was early 2011-12. Now, obviously, Facebook is a different company. But from a budget perspective, from a resource constraint perspective, so the production infrastructure teams required that we never take more than 0.1% or 1% of CPU utilization. A kernel mode thing that's streaming every file event or processor network event was definitely not in the cards for us. It's funny. I mean, a lot of people adopt open source for similar reasons, right? They'll adopt it because I don't have the budget or, you know, I don't have the expertise or whatever it may be. So how did that project really like kick off? And like, how did you end up sort of landing on where it ended up being, which is like SQL, selectable operating mm-hmm. system tables? And like, what was the progression of building that as a product? Yeah. So what's funny is that this time I had no formal education or experience in developing products, right? And so over the course of my journey at Facebook and Airbnb, I realized that I really loved building products and understanding customers. But at this time, unbeknownst to me, we were building an MVP. It's like, hey, is there something that we could do that's a relatively cheap investment and could prove that building something 
more resilient is worth the investment of engineering time and resources. So the first iteration was actually a bash script. It was called Big Mac and it ran on Macs first. And it was literally a script with like $1 equals and then this exec command of some kind, right? Which would grab everything in cron tab. $2 was grabbing everything in slash temp and seeing if anything was executable. It was just this smattering of a collection of data and storing it in a JSON-y style format and then shuttling it to Facebook's data warehouse at the time so we could query it with Hive or Presto. So maybe a couple of days of effort to think about what we wanted to collect. We had the expressivity of literally a shell to exec whatever we wanted to collect. And then once the data was in Hive or in Hadoop and we could query with, with uh, Hive or Presto, it's like, cool, is the data valuable? Let's actually find a threat or demonstratively prove it's useful for threat hunting or for risk identification or for intrusion detection. And it was definitely useful. Like one of the things that we collected were plists on Macs. So we grabbed every plist from library launch agents, library launch daemons. Once it landed in the data warehouse, we distinct it. And then we basically vetted each one. And then we would be alerted when a new one would come up. And this is one of those interesting things where you have to try and... It's like someone might tell you, oh, there's an infinite number of plists. How are you going to sustainably do this? But there's actually not that many, right? Like if you actually do the work and you think about the number of applications that employees will install and find useful, it's like, yeah, the entire app store is a tremendous amount of plists. But the diversity in applications in your environment is nowhere near that number. And even at that time, I don't remember how many employees we had, it was a very tractable problem to actually review plists. That's a really cool way. It's it's like, hey, at the time, that was the most common way to persist on a Mac, right? It was a plist through a launch daemon or launch agent. And so if we could review those, we didn't have to rely on IOCs or atomic indicators or some of these more ephemeral things that you would otherwise look for. So kind of like a nice TTP-ish kind of thing. So it started off as a bash script, which is probably shocking to a lot of people who are familiar with the open source project, it being written in C++. I actually remember even getting exposure to it for the first time, and I could never develop in C++, and I learned like the most rudimentary C++ to be able to just deploy it at the companies that I was working at. How did it end up making that transformation from like a simple a Big Mac <laughs> bash script, which is a hilarious name, by the way, uh, to become more generalized across your production environment because that's a that's a very different world. So yeah, I'm curious about how yeah. that happened. Yeah, quite different. So what's really cool about the security community is we tend to share what we're doing, what we're learning, um, draw inspiration from others. And so you know, some folks at Facebook presented on Big Mac at a conference, and it inspired Mike Arpaia, who was working at Etsy at the time. And he's like, hey, I can build the next iteration of this. And so using it was Python and maybe a mix of something else and with an ORM, and then it was called Midas. And so it was the next iteration of that. And so he and his team did a talk and connected with us and said, hey, maybe we can collaborate. Maybe you guys want to use Midas. So it was really cool to see this simple idea of a bash script exciting someone else. They then take it to the next iteration, which was which was Midas. We thought that was pretty cool. And at this point, you know, we were getting enough traction and seeing enough value where it's like, hey, we need to invest a team into this and let's actually go build this out. So I then went ahead and 
got a hold of Mike and poached him and he came over to Facebook. So he was basically kind of like employee number one, if you will, working on OS query. We later got uh, Teddy or Ted as the second and obviously the team grew from that. But you know, the fact that it was C++ or the fact that it used SQLite or the fact that the interface for users was SQL, it was this very organic decision-making process where we kind of thought about our constraints of like, hey, we can only use 0.1 or 1% of CPU. We know we want to capture state. We can't do streaming events. It's too expensive and it doesn't tell us what we want in most cases. So a great example is knowing that someone modified cron. It's interesting, but you got to know what the cron entry was to know if it was interesting or normal or not, right? Sometimes you can infer that from the user. Oh, was it chef? that modified it or something like that. But then again, someone could compromise your chef account. So capturing state was something that we definitely wanted to uh, do. So the cool thing about Facebook, a ton of people who are smarter than you. So we basically went to go find some really smart people in the data realm, specifically the the team that that had built and created Presto internally within Facebook, where, hey, we're trying to solve this problem. What do you think? And unfortunately, I can't think of his name, but he's like, have you considered SQLite? and walked through the the benefits, performance, and otherwise. And obviously, very well supported in that community, very fast, and hit a lot of our requirements. So that's kind of how the caching storage layer was decided. And that married nicely to, we didn't want to create a DSL for someone to have to learn to query an operating system. So SQL was approachable for existing Facebook engineers in addition to the security team. So... That's kind of how we landed on that. And then again, because of CPU constraints, we chose C++. Obviously, with you know, with Golang existing now, which didn't at the time, or maybe it did, but obviously it's infancy. Rust, like different decisions might be made today. But uh, C++ was a uh, commonly used language at Facebook at the time. So again, kind of a business contextual made decision there around the programming language in particular. And then once I did evolved from the Midas project to the OSQuery project, what was the open source like? Did you open source that at a conference or did you just put it out there under the Facebook GitHub and promote it? Or what was that launch like? Yeah, I don't remember exactly where we launched it. I remember when we started building it, obviously like retaining talent or capturing talent in today's market is really hard. It's pretty dynamic. And at the time, and it's still true today, like open source does attract a particular set of folks. It's exciting. You have a community around it and things like that. So early on, we decided we wanted it to be to wanted it to be open source. We wanted to develop the brand of security at Facebook. We wanted to attract a set of talent that we otherwise might not be able to. So we know we that was an early decision. Obviously, lots of architecture decisions get changed when you're like, oh, it needs to be open source or not. So I don't remember which conference we presented at, but I think one of the crazier things that isn't well known is when we released it, over time, we got feedback from some larger Fortune 1,500 companies. It's like, love this, would like to use it, but your license is too restrictive. And I don't remember the exact terminology of Facebook's license at the time, but it was something along the lines of like, if you use this, it created some legal barriers is maybe where I should keep it. And so myself and Mike actually worked with the legal team at Facebook and we're like, hey, these big name brands want to use this and they can't. This has to be true of other open source projects we have here at Facebook. 
And so what's kind of wild is two folks within security were the ones who drove the change in our and Facebook's entire licensing scheme for all open source. I think it speaks volumes to the legal team there and Facebook as a whole, like two quote unquote nobodies could drive or facilitate a change like that. So it was pretty exciting for OS Query as a whole. And it wouldn't be anywhere near the level of adoption rate it is today. And probably wouldn't be used like wouldn't be used in products like Cisco or Carbon Black or otherwise. I actually did not know that fact. And that was the same license change that got applied to React, wasn't it? Because I remember mm-hmm. there was a huge change that came out for licensing. Yeah, they changed the licensing a couple of times. So I'm not sure if the the particular React one you're thinking of is associated with this. But yeah, once we got the OS query license changed, it was mm-hmm. the change was across the entire open source portfolio. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the OS query repo is massively adopted. I don't even know what the GitHub stars are at this point. But I just remember watching it grow and grow and grow over time and become more supported across different operating systems. And that's kind of the beauty with open source is that you can battle test it in all these different environments and you can gather that feedback if people are willing to share it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we talk about stream alert, a lot of that was very similar. We had the opportunity to do that same thing, but I don't want to jump ahead too fast. So I'm curious about in security, there's a lot of different open source tooling. Some of it is is host-based. So when you were deciding to build OS Query, you just mentioned you know, Carbon Black was too expensive for our scale. What about other open source tooling and, and how does that complement what you built with OS Query? Mm, that's a good question. And just to clarify on the Carbon Black thing, again, you have to take into account the time frame in which this decision was made. You know, security isn't free. So, you know, there are cases in which it was too expensive for us at the time. And the technology was also young. And the CPU constraints and things like that. So... At the time, it's nowhere near as diverse as your options today, right? Today, you've got like things built on top of OSSEC like Waza and open source tooling that is very targeted for particular reasons. You've got amazing commercial offerings from companies like CrowdStrike and otherwise. And so again, like there weren't too many options. And in our case, again, like most of the options were very focused on like compliance, like, let me know if this file changes for file integrity purposes. And I need to do that for this compliance framework, right? Or it was like very threat oriented. And what was really interesting about OS query is when we had the first version of the C++ version. And, uh, you know, this was a rookie mistake, but like we built it, you know, multiple months go by, we're all high fiving, like, all right, let's get it into production. And we were goobers because we weren't having an active conversation with our friends over in production infrastructure. And so when we went to them and we're like, hey, we got this thing. It's great. It's going to solve all these security problems. How do we get it incorporated into deployment to get it on every machine? And they're like, I'm sorry, who are you and what are you doing? And you do realize like, even if this takes a small amount of compute, we're talking potentially millions of dollars. Like we fine tune everything. You can't just come in here with a piece of software and say, please deploy it. And so... We learned from that rookie mistake, like personally and as a team. And so we had to revisit, like, how do we increase the number of personas and folks who can use this and the leverage they can get out of it? So the initial set of tables were very security centric. And we realized in order to get buy in and get it deployed, we had to bring value to other teams. We had to have OSCRE be seen as an infrastructure 
product or tool, not a security tool per se. And so a lot of the subsequent tables that we built over the next couple of months were like collect CPU, collect memory, collect X, Y, and Z tables to surface things that were very Facebook centric only. Again, like given the time frame, people are like CPU and memory, like Datadog or other companies can do this all day long. But at the time, it was a little bit of uh, on the bleeding edge. So when you look at the corpus of tables today within OS Query, it almost doesn't even look security related sometimes. It's like the tables are general purpose, like processes, interesting for security, right? You might want to know if someone's like RMRFing, you know, the entire machine or has a reverse shell running via Python, right? Security cares about that. Other teams also care about what processes are running, right? Are there five instances of a web server running when there should only be one? Is there like a, a ghosted process? Is the daemon not running and it should be? And so once we created more of these tables and changed the narrative or story of who is this tool for and what can it accomplish, it was much easier to get it pushed out into production. I always find there's an intersection between ops uses and security uses with tooling. And I think OS Query is a great example of that. Because like an infrastructure engineer, security engineer is going to want to know what is out of the normal. And that can either be something malicious or something that's accidental. So that's the actual one of the biggest challenges with high scale production monitoring is knowing what normal is. And a lot mm -hmm. of it just takes intuition from your production ops team or from your internal developers to know what normal is, right? And then you have to codify like what normal is. Um, yeah, the, the intersection is definitely larger than I think most people realize. Like a great example is you think of like Chef or Puppet, right? The goal is to have a consistent state. So imagine an adversary is on a Linux machine. Let's say they got access through a remote code execution vulnerability. They might want to establish persistence and create a new account, right? Chef or Puppet is going to wipe that state in 15 minutes when it runs. Chef or Puppet knows that that state change occurred. And so it's like, you already have forms of like anomaly detection or want to keep consistent state across your fleet. And so security isn't as unique as some people think it is. And a lot of tooling that exists that production ops or infrastructure folks use can be leveraged to solve some of these problems. Yeah, that's actually how I got my exposure into OS Query was deploying it at a really large scale. And that's actually how we met. I was working at another company at the time and I had to deploy OS Query to a huge fleet, probably still one of the biggest production infrastructures that exists, likely, I hope, because that was such a crazy experience. Just all the different support that we had to write into the tool on the deployment side, that is, and then like additional tables and just a lot that we really did to go from really rudimentary monitoring to actually like really comprehensive monitoring. And that was the big benefit of OS Query. And I think it still is the big benefit of OS Query is a lot of those security centric, but also just generalized system centric stuff is just so valuable for security teams to just get that visibility. So I remember when I wrote the, the cookbook in Chef for OS Query and deployed it to like over 100,000 systems, I was just like, this is crazy. <laughs> and then, you know, it becomes a data problem at that point. You're like, cool, I got the data. And now what do I do with it? And I think that's kind of a good segue to the work we did at Airbnb. So, you know, you joined Airbnb, I think in 2015, after Facebook. And Airbnb was, and still is, it was one of those companies that was really born in the cloud. Whereas 
the Facebooks and the Googles and, and the Netflixes of the world were really born in this, this world of data center infrastructure. And Facebook very famously like did so much work on their own servers and things like that. But transitioning to you know, the Stripes, the Airbnbs and the Coinbases of the world, how did you take the approach that's much more cloud-centric to building an incident response team? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the reasons why I left Facebook. I mean, I was there for four and a half years, learned a tremendous amount. But uh, at this point, cloud was really taking off. And it's funny when you live in a data center-centric world, and you're also not on a product team. Because I remember where it's like, hey, we have this project. We want to solve this problem. We need servers. And I remember filling out forms. And it's like, oh, we need N servers or Y racks. And then we were fighting for capacity against like the photos team. And you had to pre-plan n number of months ahead of time and all these interesting things. And so with, with AWS growing in popularity and having all of these services, and just literally being able to spin them up, sounded like an exciting opportunity to reimagine how you solve particular problems. Generally, at, at Facebook, it's like, hey, let me leverage all this amazing work that these platform teams are doing. and Let me build something on top of it, right? Either the data warehouse or otherwise. And AWS kind of created this level playing field. It's like, we're your data platform team. You can spin this up with a button click in AWS console or through infrastructure as code, which was growing in popularity. And so that sounded like a really interesting opportunity. And I also thought this is going to help us reimagine how we do security. Like if you wanted NetFlow in a day, someone's got to go rack stack cable configure and make sure it's at the right egress point, right? And all this different stuff. AWS, it's like, oh, we capture that for you. Just click this button or enable this service. So in some ways, it was a great accelerant to get past some of these problems that would take you know, the first year of investment or the second one. And it's just like, cool, you already have the data. You have this playground of services and infrastructure. You can focus on the outcomes. So I found that really exciting and interesting. And so, yeah, one of my big goals was to see how we could leverage those things to solve problems in a different way. And that's a little bit of like how Streamalert was was born. Yeah, maybe that's just a good segue to talk through some of the ideation there. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about the, the zero to one journey for monitoring. When you have a blank slate, it's really exciting because you can pick and choose. And I'm sure you were very intentional about which tools we used and which tools we did not use. So what was your thought process around, you know, practically implementing security monitoring and, and kind of going from zero to one and what inspired StreamAlert? Yeah, so um, the funny thing about StreamAlert is like leaving Facebook, I'm like, hey, you know, I always felt like I was an imposter there. I always felt like people were smarter than me. Somehow I managed to make it there. And so again, going to Airbnb, you know, large brand, extremely smart engineers. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to have to study and say some pretty intelligent things in order to get in the door. And so I remember studying AWS and its services and kind of cooked up the infancy of StreamAlert just to prepare for an interview. If someone asked me, like, how would you solve this problem? And so made my way through the interview loop, got in, wasn't necessarily mentally committed to delivering that just for the sake of delivering it, had to take inventory of what we had, what was working and what wasn't. And at the time, Airbnb, and maybe still is, uh, had SumoLogic. And the goal was to use that for security-related outcomes, SIM and otherwise. And as we started to take inventory of all the data that we wanted to analyze, and again, take into account this is point in time. I have no idea their pricing structure and otherwise. But at the time, 
you know, we had something like 30 to 50 terabytes a day that we wanted to bring in. And so again, a little bit of the, what we saw at Facebook, it's like from a budget perspective, we didn't have the millions of dollars to go send a vendor. So we started playing around with what it might look like. You know, this is at the point at which, you know, we connected and it's like, Hey, how could we solve this? And then you joined. But what was interesting is like, again, all the decisions we made around StreamAlert were business centric. It wasn't like what's going to get great adoption in the open source community or like what's going to get this cool company to use this or what's going to build my, my resume. It was just like Sumo Logic was too much at the time. We couldn't solve the outcomes we wanted to. And so when you look at all the decisions for Stream Alert, it was based off of constraints. It was written in Python and the rules you would write in Python. Well, why is that? Was Python the best language? It was the best language in the sense that security engineers, if you pull them, Python's the most used language. That's why we used Python, right? The fact that it was serverless. We did that because we're like, hey, we don't have a team that can manage a large-scale platform and do patches and, and rolling updates and all these different things. So that's why we chose AWS Lambda. We have no one to manage infrastructure and we didn't want to. We didn't want the attack surface. We didn't want the ops. And the fact that it was real-time was effectively us doing user research and market research and company research and saying, most of the things we want to learn on are a single log line. Most blogs and products pitch this like very complicated like aggregation windows and catching C2 beacon intervals and all this stuff. But when you actually wrote down on paper, we want to alert on these N things, what does that comprise of? And they were all single line events, right? Or single log lines. And as a result of that, we got infinite scale. Like AWS did the scaling for us. We could easily hire people who could write Python rules, and detections, and policies. And uh, yeah, it was a little serendipitous or lucky, but we had no idea how much it was actually going to cost. And the fact that it was Python, we could iterate quickly. But I remember when we deployed it, and I think you remember this too, it's like, wonder what the monthly bill is going to be. Like, how much cost savings are we going to get? I know it's going to not be millions upon millions, but what's it actually going to be? And so it was a pretty fun way of exploring what it would take to, to solve it given the constraints that we had. Yeah, and it was really fun to build. I remember when it started off, it you know kind of reminded me of your story with OS Query's uh, origins of it being a bash script. The original deployment of Streamlayer was super rough, but you know adopting certain patterns early like Python and serverless, I think were really great calls in order to scale. But you know even at a certain scale, we we ended up finding that you know kind of hit a point of diminishing returns, and choosing a different language would have been better for certain scales and. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think at the time it was only other like it was like Java, Node, and Python. Now I think Lambdas support Golang and some others, um, mm-hmm. which is you know obviously design decisions that we had made when we built Panther. But yeah, I just remember the early days testing and, and deploying new versions and just watching the graph. Like we deploy that version, and then we would see this the Lambda duration spike up, and we're like, oh no, this, like we have to roll this back. But the beauty with that is that a lot of vendors don't have real environments to test in. And because we did, I felt like we were able to ship something that was fairly bulletproof for the scales that we operated at, which I think in the sweet spot was like under 10 terabytes a day, maybe like Mm -hmm. five actually. And then having to scale things with Kinesis was a little bit painful, but it's still exponentially less painful than having to scale a SIM, which is what I had to do at prior jobs. Because, you know, once I had deployed OS Query out to 100,000 systems, 
that's a lot of data. And um, it then becomes, how do we just get that somewhere to where we can search it? And the beauty with StreamAlert and the beauty with having like really strict schema like logs is that you could write these Python-based detections and you could do things that just were much more expressible, much more repeatable as well. And, and applying in those concepts of detections as code and, and using infrastructure as code to manage those things and to scale it further it just was a really nice transition. It honestly was a step function transition, in my opinion, from doing traditional SIM to StreamAlert. And then, you know, when we announced it at Enigma, it, it then took off a lot more and we saw like a lot of other organizations using it. And that was really exciting as well. And then being able to see how it performed in their environment and then being able to tune it a little bit better and then build mm-hmm. certain features and stuff that they needed. So yeah, Streamlord was a really, really great experience. And then, you know, the precursor to really what we're both working on today at Panther. I guess the next question would be around, like, after we built Streamalert, like, what were the big differences in doing detection and response in the Streamalert world versus, like, the prior world that you had come from at Facebook? Mm-hmm. Because those are very different everything, tooling and environment and scale. So after you'd really reimagined it, like in practice, how did it really reveal itself? Like, did it work? Yeah, I think there's kind of the operator experience. And then there's kind of the product ownership experience at Facebook. And we got to leverage a lot of, we got to, to stand on the shoulders of giants, if you will, of all these different things that they were maintaining. So we could focus on our application. Right? It's kind of like the principles of why people like serverless, like, don't think about the infra, just write your application and then magic happens. And so again, that kind of was the driving principle for a lot of the decisions around serverless and otherwise. We didn't want to have to wrestle with tooling or infrastructure. We wanted to focus on the outcomes. And as you pointed out, that led to a lot of our product decisions. And people always say like great companies and startups come from people solving real problems. And we were solving real problems. It's like, why did we create the notion of schemas? and like strong typing or denoting which fields were optional versus required. And it's because we felt the pain in previous products where if the schema changed, you were never notified. And then you do a search and you'd get incomplete data. And then you realize, oh, a new field got created and we don't index it or we don't alias the two fields. And so you might even miss an entire compromise. You search for an IOC for field X but there's a new field Y you have no idea about. So all of our decision-making was like, how do we make this sustainable? How do we know when things break? How do we know if things are working? And we wanted to you know, alert on IP addresses. In previous products, you're like, cool, what are all of my fields that are IP addresses? And like everyone who's felt this pain, it's like the DSL query for that is awful. And you hope you don't miss one. It's like, oh, here's the 25 fields I think are IP addresses across my... 48 data sources and indexes. So we were solving real problems that were rooted in pain. Pain is often the best way to learn things sometimes, right? It's like you put your hand on the stove, you're like, never going to do that again. So I think this led to operations being easier because we owned the platform and the products, if you will. And then that let us create better operations and workflows for our analysts. So I think it was... Again, like at the time, I don't think any of us realized we were approaching this through a like like product startupy lens, but just with one customer in mind, and that was Airbnb, right? So some of these decisions don't work well for everyone, right? But uh, that's why it's always funny when people ask questions about OS Query Streamer, why doesn't it do this? You want to know the answer? It's not because we don't think it would be valuable for hundreds of companies, 
it wasn't valuable to Facebook and it wasn't valuable to Airbnb. Like our checks were not being written and put in our bank accounts to go write code to enable other businesses. It was to enable the company we were working at. That happened to coincide sometimes with other businesses. And generally, the problems we were solving were applicable to a lot of teams and companies. So there was quite a bit of overlap. But that's what I think is always interesting is when companies incubate an open source project and they start getting a ton of feedback, it's like, you're not getting engineering dollars to go solve problems for other companies. You know, that's where the open source community comes in. So a lot of the feature sets in, in Streamlord or OS Query, it was always interesting. You could see who built it externally versus who built it internally. So like the real-time stuff in OS Query created by another company, like Facebook didn't write it because we could never use it, you know, things like that. So this is such an interesting background and context I've actually never heard before. So I learned a lot today. But to wrap things up for today, you've had such an incredible and diverse experience in security and I think this last question will be really interesting to, to hear your answer, which is to excel at detection at scale in the future, what are three pieces of actionable advice you'd give to any security team listening in? Yeah, so for those of us who've lived in the detection world or in, you know, maybe it's our full-time job or otherwise, detection isn't sustainable if you're not focusing on prevention as well, right? Like typically people talk about prevention, detection, and response. If you're constantly having to respond to incidents, you're not really serving your company or your business, right? So you try and do as much on the left side, but then build programs and tooling and otherwise to proactively catch risks, which could result in breaches, or catch intrusions early on before they materialize into a data breach. And I think sometimes practitioners lose that mindset or they haven't been told that, which is at the end of the day, imagine your company, three laptops get compromised by an APT. Right. And their end goal is to steal Bitcoin, right? Or to steal user data. If you catch them and contain and eradicate the threat before they achieve their objective, you win. The goal isn't to prevent the compromise of the laptop. Eventually, something can happen, right? As much defense and depth and investments that you make, bad things can and will happen. It's how fast you respond. And did you stop them before the actual, you know, classic definition of data breach occurred? Right. Like that's what matters. And so I think sometimes people lose that perspective and it's just like, we lost if a laptop gets popped. Right. Or we lost if this happens. It's like you're just trying to minimize the risk. It's like adversaries don't compromise the laptop for compromising the laptop. It's a conduit system to achieve their real objectives. So I think detection teams and intrusion detection teams and incident response teams really need to partner with their peers and think about security holistically, right? And so what's funny is like when you ask me this question, I think a lot about proactive controls and things that create some very strong foundational elements. You know, one of them is an IDP, right? Security folks often lament about the SAML tax. In fact, there's a funny website you can go to to see, you know, what's the upcharge in order to get an IDP or SAML support for it. Generally, folks are just really upset that that's the case. Taking emotion aside, my advice is you always pay the sample tax. And the reason why is if you think of the total time spent on your IT team or otherwise manually provisioning, manually deprovisioning, the risk of when they do it four hours later, let's say you fired someone who was an insider threat, Bob or Sally doesn't get to deprovisioning until four hours later or forgot, the tooling you have to maintain and update. Whether you like it or not, you're going to pay the SAML tax in one of two ways. To the vendor, 
or through operation and technical burden and debt that you have to maintain. So I think it's unfortunate. And I think every vendor should have that as table stakes. But in the world that we live in, that's not the case. So I would definitely suggest folks pay that. You get everything for free, like all of your investment you know, that you've already put into that system pays off. Role-based access control, audit logs, two-factor authentication, right? All these different things. And so when you talk to most security experts or CISOs, it's like, what are the three most important things you need to do? You know, it's like 2FA, patch, you know, and I forget the third one. And it's like, where do most teams spend their time? The path of least resistance, you know? And it's like, patching's not solved for a reason. It's because it requires a tremendous amount of stakeholders and alignment. And it's like, that's where your investment probably should go. So again, not to diminish the value of detection and response, but it's a part of a program, a larger program to classify risk, identify risk, de-risk, you know, and put your company in a position to, to be successful. So IDP, I think, is one of the most important things you can do. And for some reason, it gets associated with, with corporate security. And so like Okta and other companies have gotten well past that point. Like you can use that to access AWS accounts. You can use that for internal tooling. It's not just to access Slack. They also support zero trust and device attestation and some of these things. So I think it's a really nice way to invest in one area and you get quite a bit of a force multiplier with it. I think another piece of advice I would give is choose the hills that you die on. It's really interesting that I don't think most people understand the cost of doing things. And so like a great example, I think it happens at a lot of companies, especially in Silicon Valley in the past couple of years is, you know, it's predominantly Mac OS. And then the one person surfaces who's important and they love Windows. And somehow without a whole lot of decision making, it's like, cool, we're now supporting Windows. And I don't think most people realize like that's a million dollar plus security investment, like out of the gate. Who's patching? Who's hardening? Does the existing MDM solution support it? How are you going to bind it if you need to? Like your tooling choices change, your deployment methodologies change. Every time there's a new O-Day or whatever, you have to think about two platforms versus one. And so it's decisions like that where it's like, hey, we're going to do this. You know, as a CISO, it's like, we can do this. I just want you to understand this is an ongoing rolling basis cost of like 500 grand a year. If we're fine with that, that's fine. But I need that money or that team to support that. And it's these decisions that don't get much time or much thought. And then you just get this huge cost, increased attack surface, and you know it's security's hard, right? So I think that's definitely one, one thing that I would suggest. And then the last thing goes back to our open source stuff is don't build things just to build things. Detection and response has rapidly evolved in the last decade. Like things we were doing in 2011, there wasn't a vendor you could pay. You know, today you've got SOAR platforms, EPP products, you know, the gamut across like uh, device management and otherwise. And so, like, focus on what you're uniquely positioned to do and then write checks for everything else, assuming that like you've got the budget to do it. Like, I would not encourage anyone to invest in, for example, endpoint detection. Like, that should be on the bottom of your list. You should be writing a check to CrowdStrike on day one. Right. It's like, how many analysts do they have? How long has their product been refined? How complicated is their QA process for every minor patch and major version? It's like, you're not going to get there. So again, like OS query in this case could be useful because it captures a lot of system state that could benefit a ton of stakeholders. But if your end game for OS query is finding APT 
or finding malware, I would suggest you greatly reconsider and say, hey, could you write a check to CrowdStrike or uh, Sentinel One or Carbon Black or otherwise? They've built amazing products over the course of the past you know, decade or so. And I think you know, a lot of security practitioners relive the life they lived at their past job. It's like year one, deploy these five tools. Year two, get all the data. Year three, question mark, question mark. Year four, profit. Average tenure of a security engineer is two years. So everyone's just living the same life over and over and over again. So I think that's the really cool thing about AWS, like in particular, like we did with StreamAlert and there being so many startups and so many different vendors, you can accelerate your first number of years of investment by leaning on people who built amazing products. And then you can focus on your outcomes for your business. Jordan, thanks so much for the insight and uh, in the time today. It was really great to uh, go deep in all these different things and um, really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.